everybody, welcome back to Actualization Station. In our previous episode, we considered the missing piece of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the phenomenon of human experience known as self-transcendence. In the later years of his life, Maslow remained curious about what motivates individuals who are highly self-actualized. He was particularly curious as to why some self-actualized, highly successful people still remain corrupted, despite their ability to be successful. His answer to this was to propose self-transcendence as the highest stage of human potential, beyond self-actualization. He had noticed through his previous research of individuals who had peak experiences, that there were some who were primarily motivated by concerns beyond their individual being who experienced themselves as interconnected with everything around them and behaved with this holistic perspective in mind. He further noted that the experiences of those at this level of being were characterized by an overriding sense of awe for the wonder of existence, along with an expanded sense of awareness and a compassion for life in general. These transcendent individuals also experienced a sense of the sacred in all things and lived in communion with all of nature and the cosmos. The recognition of self-transcendence as a stage of human potential beyond self-actualization presents us with a paradoxical solution to the greatest problems humanity faces. It presents us with a way that agrees with that old adage, To change the world, we must first change ourselves. But how to do that? How does one realize self-transcendence? This question sets us up to begin our exploration into the practice of self-inquiry, a technique for examining one's own nature, which is accomplished through the turning of attention inward to the sense of being itself. Self-inquiry was espoused by people like Ramana Maharshi and Jiddu Krishnamurti, who we will cover in greater detail in future episodes. For now, let's briefly introduce them both and their insights relating to the practice of self-inquiry, as self-inquiry presents us with a particularly direct path to the realization of one's true and self-transcendent nature. Ramana Maharshi, born in 1879, was a teacher in India who became well-known during the 20th century following a powerful episode he experienced as a young man in which he watched himself dying. Though Ramana did not die, despite the feeling that he had, for his body remained alive. This experience, which brought him into a profoundly altered state of consciousness, impacted him so deeply that he spent the next ten years of his life in completely silent meditation, not speaking for an entire decade, focusing only on the disciplines of silence and non-attachment. During this prolonged silence, Ramana became well known as a powerful teacher whose gaze alone could send someone into a complete realization of their true nature their self-transcendent state of being, the constant silent awareness that had always been there prior to the accumulation of concepts and ideas 
that they had formed throughout their life that made up their previously misperceived sense of self. Suddenly, they realized that they were interconnected with everything around them, that their thoughts and ideas were the result of millions of years of evolution, the formation of culture and language, the patterns of conditioning handed down and modified over generations, and realized that what was aware of all of this was also aware of the idea of self they had formed. And they realized that their awareness itself remained unconditioned, was only ever watchful. This was the true, the only, actual ground of being, transcending all that seemed to have always been, transcending all that came before, and all that ever would be. After his silence, Ramna began describing the technique of self-inquiry by directing his students to repeatedly ask a fundamental question, Who am I? In order to identify the illusory nature of the psychological sense of self that covered over their innate primary state of being. Ramana ultimately died in 1950 while sitting in the lotus position, and the last word from his mouth was, the Sanskrit word for the ultimate reality of the universe. Jiddu Krishnamurti, born in 1985, is another well-known teacher of self-inquiry. He was adopted as a young boy by Dr. Annie Besant, the then president of the Theosophical Society. She and other members of the society proclaimed that Krishnamurti would become known as a world teacher, not unlike Christ or Buddha. An organization called the Order of the Star in the East was built around him, and Krishnamurti was put in charge of it. But in 1929, he renounced the role the society intended for him to play and dissolved the order, along with its massive following of thousands of members, to the great dissatisfaction of those who had been a part of it and who wanted to perceive him as the next messiah. However, Krishnamurti never stopped teaching. He simply denied the role of a messiah. Thus, after disbanding the organization built around him, he went on to travel the world and talked to large audiences for over 60 years until his death in 1986. Krishnamurti to this day is considered one of the greatest thinkers and teachers of all time. He attracted the likes of the Dalai Lama, Bruce Lee, Aldous Huxley, the poet and writer Khalil Gibran, the boxer Hurricane Carter, among other great figures such as Helen Keller, Charlie Chaplin, George Bernard Shaw, and scientists like Einstein's great friend and fellow physicist, David Bohm. Heads of state came to him for his teachings, and at one point he was even asked to speak before the United Nations, though he lambasted the collected members of the organization for their backwards methods of attempting to affect the outer world without first addressing the inner 
His way of thinking was revolutionary and remains profoundly radical, even today. The challenging nature of his insights is well expressed by the following quote. When you call yourself an Indian or a Muslim or a Christian or a European or anything else, you are being violent. Do you see why it's violent? Because you are separating yourself from the rest of mankind. When you separate yourself by belief, by nationality, by tradition, it breeds violence. So a man who is seeking to understand violence does not belong to any country, to any religion, to any political party or partial system. He is concerned with the total understanding of mankind. Einstein himself seemed to recognize the value of this insight as well. For when interviewed regarding how he identified himself, he stated, I am by heritage a Jew, by citizenship a Swiss, and by makeup a human being, and only a human being, without any special attachment to any state or national entity whatsoever. And as previously noted, Maslow identified self-transcendent people as autonomous individuals, independent from both the culture and environment around them. Maslow further described self-transcendent individuals as ones who seek to further a cause beyond the personal self, who experience a communion with the world around them that supersedes nationality, ethnicity, politics, and religion. As the late great neurologist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl once said, the more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. Self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. From Frankel's insights here, we can see how true self-actualization is only possible through the realization of self-transcendence. Otherwise, it goes astray, and the self-actualizing individual, while being highly successful, remains in danger of acting selfishly. We cannot fully integrate as whole human beings until we recognize the communion between ourselves and the whole of reality. The implications of what's possible if we move forward courageously are beyond our ability to imagine if we commit to inquiring together into the very nature of our perceptions and notions and favored ideas and allow the actual nature of reality to present itself just as it is. We may see before our definitions, before our thoughts and judgments, conceptions and preferences, behind and before and throughout it all, that immaculate stillness of completely open, clear, unconditional love that accepts all things just as they are. For the primary nature of awareness is all acceptance. And it is here, in the I am, before the addition of I am this or I am that, before all ideation, just the sense of I just the sense of am, just beingness itself, 
Notice how it is completely open, is purely aware of all sensations and thoughts and emotions as they appear. It does not need to be articulated. It does not need to be comprehended. It only needs to be experienced and recognized as what we truly are. In doing so, we may see ourselves in the entire world as an inexorable part of all that has ever been, all that has accumulated yet remains spacious and all-pervasive as existence itself. The stillness behind the sounds, the awareness that is there watching the thoughts and sensations as they appear, this outgrowth of earth and the cosmos. And finally, in a clear resonance with this, we may realize not only our true potential as a species, as earthlings, but our responsibility for the world as it is. And we may come back down from the mountaintop to be humble and suffer all over again. But now in the knowledge that though there is pain, we need not magnify it through attachment and suffering. We may retrain our minds, reestablish our bonds, and rise together despite the challenges that surround us. To this day, Christ's Sermon on the Mount remains wise, beyond expression, so well articulated that it has survived through the generations. What a society we could have if we as individuals committed to so high a calling. For Christ's calling asks us to see beyond an eye for an eye, to not resist another's evil, but to turn the other cheek Beyond this, he taught that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He asked us not to judge others, but to recognize our own inconsistencies and work on ourselves instead. Buddha's Four Noble Truths opens humanity to a higher way of being as well that recognizes the suffering of life as being directly related to our attachments, cravings, and wanting. The cure for this suffering, Buddha notes, can only be found in the cessation of attachment, which opens us to unconditional love and a wisdom that penetrates all. Now we may comprehend Jeddu Krishnamurti's quote with better understanding of what he meant by it. When you call yourself an Indian, or a Muslim, or a Christian, or a European, or anything else, you are being violent. Do you see why it's violent? Because you are separating yourself from the rest of mankind. When you separate yourself by belief, by nationality, by tradition, it breeds violence. So a man or a woman who is seeking to understand violence 
does not belong to any country, to any religion, or any political party or partial system. He is concerned with the total understanding of humankind. Krishnamurti points out to us here how identifying as this or that nationality, practice, or belief system divides us in our thinking. By doing so, it is inevitable that we break off into fragments and warring tribes. We see those not party to our belief system as others, as dangers that we must fight. Through our conditioning, we become identified and attached with our particular culture, and rather than seeing beyond it, we become blinded to the humanity of others. If we truly seek a total understanding of humanity's predisposition for violence, we must recognize how our thinking can separate and divide us. And of course we seem separate, but are we truly separate from the world? If the ground is taken away from a tree, how can a tree grow? A tree is made of earth and sun, just as we are, descendants of stardust billions of years old. Paths to self-transcendence, such as self-inquiry, suggest a way forward for humanity that transcends ideology and the divisive patterns of thinking. We may continue to attempt to address the problems of the world by instituting changes in the outer society. Expecting changes in our laws and institutions will change the individuals within them. But as Jiddu Krishnamurti, Albert Einstein, Martin Luther King, Ramana Maharshi, Helen Keller, among others have pointed out, true and lasting change in society begins within each individual. And regardless of how well the outer aspects of society are regulated, no outer revolutions, no changes in law or leadership will have a lasting effect on society itself. For as Krishnamurti so clearly stated, the world is you, and you are the world. Thus, the revolution must begin within. Thank you everybody for joining me on this episode of Actualization Station. In our next in-depth episode, we will continue with Krishnamurti's insights, relating how we quite literally are the world, and the world is us, beyond metaphor and mere expression. And we will learn how to know this experientially, rather than merely intellectually, by learning how to practice self-inquiry in our next guided meditation which I will release in just a couple of days. So thank you guys for listening and stay tuned. The first song you heard today was Parallel Worlds. The second was Stainless. And the third, Hypnosis. They were all by the same artist, Alexi V, whose music you can hear at kavi.org. That's K-A-H-V-I dot O-R-G a collection of free electronic music from all around the world provided by the people at scene.org check them out